Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. When we started the KC Bobcast, we wanted to focus on people who do amazing things for the city of Kansas City. And one of those people who's been doing amazing things for years for Kansas City has been Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro Leagues Museum. Without Bob Kendrick, this museum would not be the national superstar museum that it is. And really, Bob Kendrick is one of those people that puts Kansas City in a great light, no matter where he goes, no matter who he talks to. And he couldn't have done it without Buck O'Neill. Here's my conversation with Bob Kendrick. I hate to start this off this way, but I was watching an interview with you the other day, and it kind of reminded me of myself a little bit. You're a kid from Georgia who all of a sudden on a whim decided, I'm going to Kansas City. Yeah. And that was me back in you know my high school days. On a whim, I decided I was going to Kansas, and here I am some 20 years later. I'm still here. Here you are, what, 40 years later? Ooh, and, yeah, you didn't have to throw that number right, out there. But. <laughs> big number, right? <laughs> and, and here you are some 40 years later, 40 years and later. you're still here. This town has a stranglehold on people, doesn't well, it? You, you do. It's it's a great it's a great town and, and I say that with no disrespect because it's obviously a metropolitan city mm-hmm. but it doesn't feel like a city you don't feel so confined and so congested like you do in some of the larger cities and, and Kansas City has everything that you would want from a major metropolitan area without some of the things that you don't want mm-hmm. from a major metropolitan area and so when I left Georgia in 1980 to come out to Park College at that time, now Park University, uh, I went sight unseen. And I ended up staying, and I've been here ever since, and quite frankly, I've yet to look back. You know, you always sometimes wonder what would have happened had I done this, but this is without question the best move that I could have made, and so Kansas City has been home now longer than Georgia. You know, I left Georgia when I was 17, 18 years old, yeah. and I've been here ever since. You know, it, it's fun because everybody knows you. Everybody knows Bob Kendrick. <laughs> everybody knows you're synonymous with the Negro Leagues Museum. But I think if you say to people, well, how did he become synonymous with the Le- Negro Leagues Museum? They go, I don't know. He just is. Like, <laughs> like, like nobody knows the backstory of how you and the museum form like this perfect marriage. How'd that happen? It, it's a, and it's an incredible story. You know, because, Bob, I started as a volunteer at the Negro Leagues Museum back in 1993. So who knew? You know, you go from volunteer to now trying to run the organization that I absolutely fell in love with. But I started volunteering. At that time, I was working for the Kansas City Star. And I was working in the Star's promotions department, which functioned as its in-house advertising agency. Mm -hmm. And so I drew the assignment of promoting the museum's first ever traveling exhibition, an exhibition called Discover Greatness. And it debuted in that storefront space where Bayou on the Vine is currently Danny formerly resided in. And it debuted there in 1993. And we had some success with that promotional campaign. Some 10,000 people came out during the month of August to see that exhibition. And I think then the officials at the Negro Leagues Museum knew that we had something special. And at that point, they asked me if I would consider joining their board of directors. I did uh, very humbly joined the, the board of directors and started doing a lot of the marketing, PR, community relations things for the museum as a volunteer 1998, I stepped off the board to become the organization's first director of marketing. 
subsequently vice president of marketing. I left for about 13 months mm-hmm. and then came back in 2011 to serve as president uh, of this organization. It has been a labor of love. I fell in love with the athletes. I fell in love with the story. I fell in love with Buck O'Neill. Uh-huh. And, and so once you met Buck, I tell people all the time, once you were bitten by the Buck bug, you just wanted to be on Buck's team. And so I, I just became almost engrossed in this story but it wasn't something that you wanted to keep to yourself. Sure. No, you wanted everybody else to know, and you wanted them to love this as much as you had loved it, and particularly because I was a baseball fan. You know, I felt like I was a fan, and here was this entire chapter of baseball and American history that I didn't know anything about. Now, yeah, I knew Satchel Paige, Cool Papa Bell, Josh Gibson. Those names went mainstream. But no idea about the breadth, the depth, the scope, the magnitude of what this incredible story meant both on and off the field. I, I think it really is a fascinating story. And if we had 27 hours, we could sit here and talk about <laughs> everything that goes on and, and went on with the Negro oh, absolutely. You know, It would be just incredible stories to tell. And I, I think the one thing about you that I find so fascinating is you're not only synonymous with the Negro Leagues Museum, you're synonymous with Kansas City. You're, you're one of the best ambassadors that we have for this town. Not just for the museum, for this town. And I think that's a reflection on who you are as a person because every time I see you, great mood, smiling, dressed like a superstar. <laughs> I mean, my goodness, all the time, right? And you're always in just such a great mood. Yeah. How do you always have just a positive, great attitude every single day? Well, I think it's part of who I am. I, I, I think that's been part of my makeup from the time that I was a kid. Uh, I think I've always been a rather engaging person. Uh, now, some days are more difficult and more challenging than others. Sure. But I also think that every day that we're on this earth is a tremendous blessing. No matter what may be going on at that particular time, whether it's in the office or at home or what have you, we all go through trials and tribulations. But, man, you know, having been around a lot of these players, having spent so much time with Buck O'Neill, who was without question the most positive, upbeat, energetic person that I've ever met, Buck would walk into the building, Bob, and... You know, I'm dragging. I'm ready to get on the elevator. And here come Buck bopping into the building, running up the stairs. I'm like, damn, I can't get on the elevator now. I got to go up the stairs with Buck. You know, and so that also, I think, added to it. And I think when you're around people like that, your outlook maybe not necessarily changes, but it expands. So you appreciate every single day and every single person that you meet for what they are and the new experiences that they may bring into your life. And, and I think I've just uh, adopted that mindset, and it certainly helps. You, you've co- be, kind of become an extension of Buck. I mean, he's been gone for a decade now, but every time I look at you and think about you, <laughs> the first thing you think of is Buck O'Neill and how synonymous you two guys were together. Did you ever think your life could be changed so much by somebody when you were 18 years old, 20 years old? 20, you didn't even know who he was? No, I didn't even have any idea who he was. And even when I started volunteering, volunteering with the museum in 1993 like a lot of people I'd heard the name Buck O'Neill but prior to that time had not met Buck O'Neill so no there's no way to even fathom that he would be so influential in my life outside of my parents and my brother Buck O'Neill is the most influential person in my life and in some ways because we spent so much time together doing what we do he had even a greater level of influence And and so there's not a single day that passes by that I don't think about Buck. 
And, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And, and it motivates me. It motivates our team at the Negro Leagues Museum to make sure that we can build and sustain the absolute best museum that we can to not only perpetuate his legacy, but the legacy of all those legendary athletes who were part of this amazing story. How did that relationship with you and Buck O'Neill start? When I met him in 1993. And I was spellbound by the energy, uh, by the charisma, by the charm, like all of us. Yeah. You know, and, and I, too, had seen him in the epic Ken Burns documentary on the history of baseball. And as I tell the story, America fell in love with Buck O'Neill because he became the star of Ken's epic documentary. You know, there were a lot of people who were outstanding in that documentary, but Buck O'Neill, hands down, stole the show because you had this very charming, gentle man telling these wonderful stories to baseball fans that they had never heard before. And, Bob, he was doing it with a twinkle in his eye and a smile that lit up the screen, and America fell in love with Buck. He was 82 years old at that time. And I'll never forget the headline in the Kansas City Star after the premiere of baseball was that a star was born at 82. Yeah. And that was Buck. And it catapulted Buck into a new level of stardom. And he'd been a, he'd been a big star in the Negro Leagues. But he went to a whole nother level of stardom after this Ken Burns documentary. And God blessed him to live for another 12 years. Whereas I tell people all the time, he was literally gallivanting around this country preaching the gospel of the negro leagues and the virtues of his museum to any and everybody who would listen i wanted to be part of that crusade i joined him on the crusade and man i feel blessed to have spent so much time hanging out with buck o'neill and they paid me to do it now they didn't pay me much but they paid me nevertheless to hang out with buck o'neill i would have done it for free don't and tell anybody that. I know it. I know it. I know it. <laughs> and, and so, but it was one of the, it was a, I truly see it as a blessing because there obviously was a lot of wisdom to be imparted if you wanted it. Mm -hmm. He didn't force it on you, but it was there. And I tell people all the time, the smartest thing I ever done was I kept my mouth closed and I listened. And so now I get to share many of the very same stories that Buck shared with me. He shared with others generations ago. I get to share those stories with a new generation of baseball fans, and I'm so excited that they're responding quite similarly to the way that we responded when we heard those stories from Buck, even though obviously they're secondhand. Buck lived those experiences. I got them firsthand from him, and now I get to share them. And I think in doing so, it keeps him alive in my mind and in my heart. I feel like he's still alive, and he's been dead for a very long time, 12 years, years now, Almost right? 12 years, yeah. and every corner I go, somebody got a Buck O'Neill story, and it never gets old. I never get tired of hearing them, but that's how instrumental he was, and I think it's special that our city in particular has never forgotten Buck O'Neill and that the baseball world has not forgotten Buck O'Neill. And certainly our job at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is to ensure that Buck is never forgotten. Baseball has a way of, of touching fans more than any other sport. Like, you know, football's in full swing now. I, I love the game we, of football, I love it too. right? But for whatever reason, it, it, it doesn't hit you like baseball does. It just doesn't. And, and Buck O'Neill, nobody hits you like that That guy did. And when last year the Royals ran the commercials with Buck O'Neill oh. singing, there wasn't a heart in this town that didn't 
didn't melt and eyes that didn't well up. And and for whatever reason, and I don't know why that is, no other sport can bring out that no. kind of emotion like no. baseball can. No, Bob, baseball, and I say this all the time, is the ro- most romanticized sport of them all. We mark periods in our lives by this game. Yeah. And so maybe it is that nostalgic nature of America's pastime that draws us in. I love the other sports. I do. I'm a huge basketball football fan i'm a developing soccer fan you know i don't quite understand it but i'm learning and, sure and even hockey but they're not baseball they're, they're not baseball and, and it does it grabs you that way and uh, i think that's part of it that romantic nature of our sport are we sitting here today if ken burns never came along and did this documentary i don't know if we would be you know uh, perhaps but there's no question that Ken's influence through the work of baseball helped move this to another level. And if you recall, the documentary was released right around the time that baseball went on strike. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And a lot of people had become sullen on our, on our national pastime because they were looking, they were angry because they felt like these athletes and owners who were making what they perceived to be a lot of money couldn't come together and they killed the all-star game and they killed the world series mm-hmm. and people were angry and then all of a sudden here comes buck o'neill in this refreshing manner talking about a piece of history and a group of athletes who persevered who overcame tremendous social adversity to play this game and all of a sudden it elevated in the minds and consciousness of people worldwide how special the Negro Leagues were. And and so it it almost happened at a perfect time for the Negro Leagues and the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And then uh, there was Buck telling people that, no, baseball going to be all right. Yeah, you can't kill baseball. And and he meant it, you know. And we saw baseball respond, and it came back, and people embraced it once again, as we have throughout the history of this great sport. No matter what the ordeals the sport has gone through, we ultimately embrace it, re-embrace it, and we come back to this game. It's baseball, yeah. And and baseball is so unlike any other sport, too, where it's just it's so definitive in in American history as well. You can define American history eras by baseball and look about what's going on in the sport, what's going on in in life in in, in America at that time. And I heard you say something in an interview about Buck O'Neill where he said it's easier to love than hate. And I heard that, and it really stuck out because – we need that now. We need it in, a, we need in the that worst in, way. In the worst way. In 2018 yeah. in America, we need Buck O'Neill again to yeah. deliver that message. Yeah. Who's going to do that? Who's going to deliver that message? Because when, whenever Buck said that, I don't know what year Buck said that in or when you were quoting him from that, but I went, man, that rings true today. It, yeah. it, we, it is easier to love than to hate, and we need to have more of that going on in America right we, now. How do we get that? And, and I think that's why the Negro Leagues Museum is so important, Bob. I really do, because when you come in there – even though the context is American segregation, horrible chapter in this country's history, mm-hmm. but the real story is what occurred out of segregation. And the fact that these athletes who endured tremendous social adversity harbored no bitterness or ill will toward those who may have perpetrated you know, these acts against them. And I find that an amazing and endearing quality. It was led by the people like Buck O'Neill and the late great Monty Irvin and Larry Doby and those who so vividly demonstrated that you could indeed 
get further in life with love than you could with hate. It takes a lot of energy to hate another human being. Yeah. And, and to hate somebody that you don't even know. Yeah. That takes a lot. As Buck would say, hate kills you on the inside. Yeah. And I think that's why those athletes live such long, fulfilled lives, because they would never allow their hearts to be hardened with hate. And I think that is a message that we need to get out in as broad a fashion as we possibly can. And I th- that's why I say I think the museum is more important today than ever before because we've seen this resurfacing of a level of hatred that we thought we had moved beyond. Mm-hmm. We are the most sophisticated nation in the world, so we say. And yet we are moving backwards when we start to look at some of these things from a social standpoint. And so as you can imagine, when young people come into the museum, they're introduced to a segregated society for the first time. And to a child, they summarize segregation quite simply. That was dumb. Sure. And they're right. It was dumb. And there's so much that we can learn from our children. And we know that hate is a learned behavior. We are not born into this world hating anyone. And I think Buck understood that. And I used to ask him about where that came from. Where does that innateness in you come from? And he said, my daddy told me, treat every man the way you want to be treated. The golden rule. And Bob, we all know the golden rule, but we don't all live the golden rule. And somehow or another, Buck O'Neill found it within him to take something that his father had said when he was a boy and he carried that with him and then that became a part of who he was. The last two years, not, not just in America, but in sports, have become very controversial for a lot of people, with, with obviously with Colin Kaepernick and yeah. the way that the, the whole situation has gone down with him. What would Buck O'Neill be saying today if he was still alive? Well, I think he saw these things play out over the course of his lifetime. So he saw... Jesse Owens. He saw Joe Lewis. Yeah. You know, he knew of the Jack Johnson story. He saw Tommy Smith at the Olympics. You know, a simple raised fist. Mm -hmm. You know, and so, honestly, I think he would be proud of the stance that Colin Kaepernick took. Because, again, he saw Kurt Flood. You know, he saw saw Muhammad Ali. At that time, Cassius Clay. Mm -hmm. You know, and he saw how vilified they became. He saw Jackie Robinson. Yeah. And and so social movements and sports has always been prevalent. This is nothing new. And in my belief, the narrative was shifted away from what it was intended to be. Exactly. And that's that's the main issue with everything that's going on is nobody's focusing on On the real narrative. narrative Yeah. 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 And, And the stance that Colin took was about the fact that innocent kids were losing their lives at the hands of police officers and there was nothing being done about this and uh, whether you believe right or wrong you almost have to applaud the stance because I tell people all the time when you walk in your conviction more times than not you're going to walk alone and in this case it means that that person who makes that stance is likely going to lose everything yeah Mm-hmm. And because they took that stance. And now, again, that remains to be seen, whether that is the case with Colin, certainly the case with the new Nike ad sure. that has been being, uh, introduced 
here. And so, but I do think that Buck, having seen these things transpire over his lifetime, I think he would have applauded Colin for, for what Colin's stance is. Now, I used to ask them about the national anthem. I used to say, Buck, did you all play the national anthem at Negro League games? And he'd look at me like I was crazy, like, man, why did you ask me that? Of course we did, because I wanted to know why. Because the anthem represents what this country is supposed to be about. Yet they were being treated as un-American as anyone. Right. Yeah. And they were as American as anyone, but they were being treated as un-American as anyone. Yet that symbol of what it represented, that symbolic nature of what the anthem and the flag represented was something that they obviously embraced. And for him, they wanted to prove that they were as American as anyone. Well, there's still a cross-section of our population that is still trying to prove that they are American. And America, the symbol is one thing. We now have to fulfill what that promise of this country truly means to each and every individual who is a citizen uh, of this great country. It's still the greatest country in the world. No question. Doesn't mean that it doesn't have its faults, though. That doesn't mean that it doesn't have its fault. A good friend of mine who served in Vietnam, and he, he talked to me about the flag and what the flag meant to him. And I'll be honest, it didn't mean the same to him because while he was serving in Vietnam, he walked by a Confederate flag every single day that he was in Vietnam. And they were on the same team. But they had this internal war that was going on within the war. And so does flag mean the same to him? Probably not. You know, and I can understand that. You know, so I think we are sometimes too quick to shift the narrative. And this, in my, in my opinion, the narrative has been totally shifted away from what it was never anti-military. It was never anti-flag. Right. It was never anti-anthem. It was about trying to call an attention and needed attention to some things that were happening, some social ills that were still occurring in this country that had been occurring 70 years ago. We, 80 years ago. We, we have talked about this for over two years now, and I don't understand why people still don't have a grasp of, of why this started and what the genesis of this was. And here we are two years later. I must have talked about it a thousand times. You probably talked oh, about it a thousand times. Everybody's talked about it, but yet there's still folks out there who don't seem to understand this has nothing to do with the military or the flag it has to do with having justice for all which is you know you know part of our pledge of allegiance and things like that you know like like that's part of what america is justice for all and clearly in this country we still don't have justice for all and we're saying everybody should have the same rights and the same justice and there are people who are struggling i think to to understand and to grasp that message i i think you're i think you're absolutely right and so for whatever reason Again, this narrative was shifted away, and obviously, in many in many realms, he's become vilified. But Muhammad Ali was vilified. Muhammad Ali was vilified for not going to Vietnam, mm-hmm. and, and people kind of they hated Ali. Well, what happens? History inevitably always sides with the athlete. It always does. Mm-hmm. And then Muhammad Ali becomes one of the most revered, perhaps the most revered athlete of all time. Jackie Robinson said the exact same thing that Colin has said. You know? 
And Jackie Robinson is perhaps the most important individual in American history. You know, what he did in breaking baseball's color barrier and how that changed our society so greatly. So there are always these examples of others who have done similar kinds of acts. And and as I said, it, by the time the the final chapter is written, history always sides with the athletes. Now, again, during that process, Muhammad Ali lost a lot. Yeah. Yeah, he lost a lot. He was heavyweight champion of the world at that time. You know, he lost some prime years of his career. Uh, Tommy Smith and those guys, when they came back from the Mexico Olympics, they couldn't get a job, you know. But you go back, Joe Lewis, who had been the heavyweight champion of the world, the most prestigious title in sports at that time, go over and fight in the face of communism. He's revered, but comes back home, uh, he's still second-class citizen. Jesse Owens, the exact same thing. Couldn't get a job when he got back. You know, so you and the same for many Vietnam vets who went over, thing. regardless of color of or skin, color. right? Absolutely. Went over they and fought, and, and, when they right? Came back. They came back here, and boy, they, they came back to an angry mob almost. Yes, yes. And, and so we need to take those kinds of things into account before we jump to conclusion about anything. And and me, I'm always one that wants to process information, and and just because we, you and I, may not share the same opinion on something. That doesn't make me an enemy. You know, uh, I, I don't mind people having alternative opinions. But you know, when you're so locked into I'm right that you can't see another person's view, then we got well, there's a problem there. Good there, thing Branch yeah. Rickey didn't feel that way back in the 1940s, you oh, know. we don't get Jackie Robinson. Right. Yeah, we don't get Jackie Robinson because he knew that the other owners, he was going to be ostracized. He knew this. And yet with the help of the commissioner they knew that they could make this thing work but his his position was always going to be the other owners were not going to like him for this move that he was about to make although eventually what happens the other owners follow suit sure like okay he done got one i'm going out and get me one too We'll get back to our conversation with Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro Leagues Museum, in a moment. But first, I want to tell you about Red Door Grill. And the thing that I love most about Red Door Grill is that there's something for everyone. No matter what your tastes are, you're going to find it at Red Door Grill. If you're like me and you love salmon and you love salad, the salmon salad is the best in Kansas City. If you're a fried chicken fan, oh my, you're going to get the best fried chicken in the world every single Thursday. It's fried chicken that George Brett and Warren Moon rave about every single day. And, of course, $5 Burger Monday is the perfect way to kick off a week. For just 5 bucks, you can get a half-pound flame-grilled burger to your perfection every Monday at Red Door Grill. And I personally love the weekend brunch. Every Saturday and Sunday, you can get the vegetable frittata, the Kentucky hot brown, even the chicken and waffles that my kids absolutely love. And parents, weekdays, 4 until 7, happy hour every single day, Monday through Friday. So get into one of the three Red Door Grill locations in Overland Park, Leewood, and Brookside, and we'll see you at Red Door tonight. But it it seems like today where we should be more open to everything, and maybe because it's just the era in which we live, and we weren't alive in the 40s, and we don't know know. know what was really going on, 
But it, it, it seems like now, I, I don't know that some of us still have the open-mindedness that we need to have to be living in 2018. It, it, makes, it makes you wonder. You know, it makes you wonder where all this hate, whether, whether it was just festering and it was like a, a closed wound. And once it was open, it started to pour out if people feel empowered now to express it in ways in which perhaps they hadn't. It was sitting kind of dormant. Uh, it does make you wonder. and But, you know, again, it makes you wonder, why do you hate somebody? You know, where does this come from? You know, where, you know, because, again, we're not born into this world hating anyone. Right. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it just takes too much energy to hate. It Way really does. Too much. Way too much energy. When people come down to the Negro Leagues Museum, what's the number one lesson you want them to take away? The number one thing when they walk out of there, they can say, I learned this. Well, I, I think for me... It's almost a given that they're going to meet some of the greatest baseball players to ever play this game. But by, by the time you walk away from that experience, I believe you walk away with a greater and deeper appreciation for just how great this country really is. Yeah, because I think of it more as a history museum Absolutely. than a baseball museum. Absolutely. Because the story of the Negro Leagues embodies everything that's great about this country. It, this story is about pride. It's about passion. It is about perseverance. It is about the refusal to accept the notion that you're unfit to do anything. So I'll show you. Yeah, you won't let me play with you. I'll just create a league of my own. Yeah. Well, that is the American way. And so even though America tried to prevent them from sharing in the joys of her so-called national pastime, it was the American spirit that allowed them to persevere and prevail. So there's no question that once you leave the Negro Leagues Museum, you leave cheering the power of the human spirit to persevere and prevail. That's the biggest thing I think people draw from this story. I think if you're having a bad day, and we all do have those bad days, go down to the Negro Leagues Museum, take a tour, walk through, talk to you, and you feel better. You just feel better walking out of there like, man. I, I just experienced something pretty darn awesome in my own town. I feel better than I did when I walked in there. Not many places have that not kind of places. effect, you know? And, and not many civil rights stories have that kind of effect. You leave a little bit beat up sometimes sure. when you go because you see the dogs released on people and the water hoses sprayed on them just because they were, you know, marching or fighting for justice. And we're still fighting for that. But when you come to the Negro Leagues Museum, it's so triumphant. It's nothing sad, nothing somber, even though it is anchored in the ugliness of American segregation. But when you look at the images on those walls, you see people immaculately dressed, going to a ball game. You see the pride that emanates from the players' faces as they're getting an opportunity to play the game that they love. And they knew they were good at it. And they wanted the world to know just how good they were at this sport. And and so you look at this extraordinary business enterprise that developed as a result of being shut out of the major leagues. So, yeah, it's very triumphant in nature. And I do think that people grasp that when they walk away from that experience. I I think it also reflects back, as we were talking about earlier, just the sport of baseball. And and I'll go back to January. I was having a rough little go at it in January, the Winter Blues. And my friend Gene Watson of the Royals called me up. He goes, I'm in town. Come have breakfast with me. I said, all right. So we went and had breakfast. He goes, let's take a ride. And we go down to the Urban Youth Academy. It was the first time that I'd been there. And it was like the Chiefs had just been eliminated from the playoffs. (laughs) Spring training was still a couple of weeks away. I'm in those winter doldrums, not feeling real good. It's gloomy. It's cloudy. 
And I walk into that Urban Youth Academy, and boom, my mindset changed. And I don't know if it was the thought of spring, the thought of baseball, but whatever it was, it made me just ultimately feel better. And if it can have that kind of effect on me just for one gloomy day in January, just think about what the Urban Youth Academy now, what your museum, what the sport of baseball can do for so many different people. And, Bob, I think we experienced it in 14 and 15 with how many people use the Royals during that run to make their life better. Oh, yeah. And and it brought people together in ways in which no other sport does. Right. You know, and, and baseball has historically done that. You know, uh, there's no question. As I tell people all the time, when Jackie breaks the color barrier, that jettisoned the beginning of the civil rights movement in our country. And baseball became part of that healing, uh, had that healing impact, that healing effect. And all of a sudden, people of all colors started to come together. And the beautiful thing about when Jackie breaks the color barrier, you saw white kids saying, I'm Jackie Robinson. Because they didn't care what color Jackie Robinson was. They saw a great baseball player. And that's the effect that baseball still has. Mm-hmm. You know, when we won the World Series in 2015, the 800,000 plus people were of all beautiful shades of color. And they were there celebrating our Kansas City Royals. I still don't know where they all came from. I know, right? Yeah, I have no idea where they all came from. Uh. But it was a beautiful scene to see. And that's the impact and the power that baseball has. Urban Youth Academy, I think, is going to have a big impact not only on you guys but on Kansas City in oh, general. Oh, yeah, already have Already one. has. What, what, what does that mean right now, and what do you expect it to mean over the next, say, 10 years or so for Kansas City? Well, I, I think actually lost inside, again, the romantic nature of creating this facility that is going to give kids, and particularly urban kids, an opportunity to play our sport is the fact that this is a $21 million economic development project that is built right in the heart of the urban core. And so what it has done, it has created this nexus, this, what I like to refer to as this cultural campus that we have at 18th and Vine. So you have this beautiful baseball facility that has also created these other community uh, offshoots, basketball court, playground, track, uh, tennis courts that have been developed so that the community can be fully engaged. You have a Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. You have an American Jazz Museum. You have the Black Archives of Mid-America. You have the Alvin Ailey Dance Troupe. You have an impending cultural uh, center that's being built by the Zao Brothers. You've got the redevelopment of the Paseo YMCA to create the Buck O'Neill Education and Research Center. You've got the Mutual Musicians Foundation all within a two, three block radius. Wow. Bob, there's not another city in the country that has that dearth or that degree of cultural institutions in one centralized location. Only Kansas City. Kansas City should be proud of the culture that it has right there in its context, and it all happens at Historic 18th and Vine. The most authentic historical experience in Kansas City. The things that we hang our hat on, barbecue and jazz, they all originated from 18th and Vine. So, yeah, we're excited about the future, the potential. I tell people all the time, I think the district is poised for a renaissance. The Urban Youth Academy is right there in the center uh, of what this renaissance is going to be. But I take great pride that the Negro Leagues Museum started this. Yeah. We anchored there when there was nothing else there. And we anchored there with the mindset that we could not only 
build this museum that would preserve this precious piece of baseball and Americana, but we could have an influence, a profound influence in helping revitalize what had once upon a time been a very proud and prominent African-American community. And in doing so, do exactly what Negro Leagues Baseball had done for African-American communities across this country. Wherever you had successful black baseball, you had thriving black economies. And here's a little old Negro Leagues Museum back in 1990 saying we can be that catalyst. It was a daunting task just to try to preserve the history of the Negro Leagues, no less try to shoulder the economic development of an entire community. But Buck was steadfast and he was passionate about the belief that we will anchor there and in doing so, we will resurrect historic 18th and Vine. And while it has taken maybe a little longer than we had all hoped, it would happen from a cultural, from a commercial standpoint. Right. We've seen that, that spark. We've seen people living there at historic 18th and Vine. And now the other aspects of this are certainly in tow. They're coming forward now. What is your all-time favorite story to tell people? Oh, man, there are so many. But I think for me, and it was one of the most disappointing, but also one of the most inspirational days, both for me personally and professionally, and that's the day that Buck O'Neill didn't get voted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. I will never forget that day. You know, the disappointment that we all we all shared. You know what? It actually moved beyond disappointment. We were angry. Yeah. Yeah, we were angry. The baseball world were angry. And yet here was Buck standing up at the podium telling everybody it's okay. Yeah, instead of us consoling him, he's consoling us. And it was one of the most amazing displays of strength of character that I had ever witnessed. And then I watched him push aside his disappointment because I think a lot of people thought he wasn't disappointed. But of course he was. The Hall of Fame represents the pinnacle for any athlete. And Bob, there's no question that Buck knew he was sick at that, at that time and that this was going to be his swan song. But more importantly, it was going to be the thing that would propel his museum into perpetuity. He wanted that Hall of Fame induction as much for the museum, even more so than he wanted it for himself. But he wouldn't let his heart be so hardened and with hatred and disappointment that he couldn't be joyously happy for the 17 who had gotten their place in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And as you would remember, he goes to Cooperstown, deliver this incredible speech on behalf of 17 dead folks who did not have a voice. He was their voice. And I still say it was one of the most selfless acts in American sports history. A little over two months later, old Buck passed away himself at age 94, a month shy of his 95th birthday. That story will probably stay with me as long as, as my mother would say that I'm in my natural mind, <laughs> you know, for everything that it represented. And I think his star rose that much more by the way he handled that disappointment. And it might have been his finest moment. Yeah, how he handled defeat. Yeah, it was an amazing thing to witness. And it's led to really good things for you. Yes, you formed the partnership absolutely. with Major League Baseball. Obviously, the Royals taking a, an interest with the Urban Youth Academy being down there. But that partnership you guys announced last year with MLB and the MLBPA for the, yeah. for the million-dollar grant, 
I mean, that that has to be one of the most accomplished moments of your life to be because able to do that. Because it was such a long time in the making, and you couldn't help but wonder, you know, what Buck would have thought about this or the fact that you knew he was smiling down on us to see the baseball industry, both from the player's side as well as from the owner's side, come together and say that this history is important. We're not only going to look at you as a charitable organization, which you are a great charity, but we're going to look at you as a partner because we think that this story can be impactful in helping draw people to our sport. And that was really important to us. And the fact that the commissioner and and Tony Clark, the head of the Players Association, not only understood that, but they embraced that. Mm -hmm. And so as important as the million dollars was that they donated, it was just as important that the two leaders of our industry were both present for the announcement of this partnership. You had the commissioner of Major League Baseball and the head of the Players Association sitting at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum along with Dave Winfield, uh, the Glass family and others who came out to support this historic announcement. And so the baseball world was so excited about this. They had been waiting as well. They wanted to see baseball embrace the Negro Leagues Museum. And that doesn't mean that baseball had not been supportive of the Negro Leagues Museum because it had. They had supported events, various events and things. But this signaled, I think, a new direction. And and people were so excited about this. You have uh, seen a lot of people come through that museum. Famous people, big names. You go, wow. Who's the one where you just went, wow, that person is standing here in my museum today. This is really cool. i got to contain myself. Hank Aaron. Yeah. Yeah, Hank Aaron. Yeah, uh, we've been very fortunate. We've had two American presidents and former President Bill Clinton, former President George W. Bush, Vice President Al Gore, General Colin Powell, a plethora of great athletes and entertainers. Two sitting presidents came in? Absolutely. Who would you have? Uh, President George W. Bush, President Bill Clinton. As sitting presidents came in. As sitting presidents. And and so, yeah, we've had... uh, Has Obama been down there? No, but uh, the First Lady, former First Lady Michelle Obama, Uh has been. And that was... You know, she's so was, splendid, she's isn't so she? Oh my gosh, it was incredible. Yeah. But I say all the time, with no disrespect to any of them, none of them are Hank Aaron when it comes to me. <laughs> Hank Aaron was my childhood idol, my all-time favorite baseball player, and he is the only person that I have ever been starstruck and still starstruck. We spent we've spent many occasions together since his first visit in 1999. And I'm still that 12-year-old kid. I'm reduced to that 12-year-old kid who circled the bases in my mother's living room when he hit home run 715. The old couch was first base. The TV was second base. The other little couch was third base. And whole recliner was home plate. And I'm touching them all with my idol, Henry Aaron, when that, that, that historic night at old Fulton County Stadium. I'm a kid in Georgia. And so... Yeah, that's the only person I've ever been starstruck around, and I'm still starstruck whenever I'm in the presence of the great Henry Aaron. See, for me, it was Don Mattingly. Growing up as a left-handed kid outside of New York City watching Don Mattingly in the 80s, that was my guy. That yeah. was my idol. And and I remember one time at spring training, it was him and George Brett standing there, and they called me over, and I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! Well, that's what do I do, right? For me. Even as an adult, you still feel that about your favorite baseball no player. Question. Why is that? No question. Well, you know, because it's baseball. 
and baseball reduces you to a kid. It does, hands down. You know, people remember their first baseball game. You rarely hear people talk about their first football or basketball game. It's true. But you always remember the first time you went to a baseball game. And so 1999, I draw the assignment. Baseball is celebrating 25 years of Henry Aaron's breaking of Ruth's record. It took, sadly, 25 years before he got to celebrate what many believe to be the most amazing feat in sports history because of the, the racial tension that was a part of that whole episode. Well, the Royals had brought Henry Aaron and his wife, Billy, to Kansas City. Well, Buck was out of town. Hmm. So I draw the assignment of getting to tour my childhood idol through the Negro Leagues Museum. Tough, tough gig. I am a nervous wreck. I'm laying out everything at home. Everything got to be perfect. My wife is looking at me like, man, what is wrong with you? I said, you don't understand. This is Hank Aaron. And so we get to the museum, and there's a throng of media that's going to follow us as I'm going to lead this tour of the museum. And, and I'm walking he and his wife through, and I'm sharing information with him that he didn't know, even though he was a part of this. Of course, he spent only one season in the Negro Leagues, 1952, mm -hmm. with the Indianapolis Clowns. And, of course, he comes to the Clowns as a skinny, cross-handed hitting shortstop. So Hank was a right-hand hitter who was hitting with his left hand on top, unorthodox. The fear naturally is that you break your wrist hitting in that manner. He's knocking the cover off the baseball in a highly unorthodox fashion. When he gets to the clowns, they put the right hand on top, and the rest, as they say, is history. He was shortly after discovered by the Boston Braves, who became the Milwaukee Braves, who, of course, would become the Atlanta Braves. So I'm taking him through and we're sharing. We get to this wonderful photograph of him standing at the train station in Mobile, Alabama, leaving home for the first time. All he has is this duffel bag. And he told me, he says, I may have had two changes of clothes in that bag, a dollar fifty cents in my pocket, and a ham sandwich that my mama had made me going to go chase that dream not knowing whether he was leaving home to go play with kids his own age or with grown men. Well, as it turns out, he was going to play with grown men. And, and so we take the tour and we leave and we go over to the gym theater. And at that time, we had both Jason Whitlock and Joe Posnanski, who was both national sports columnists for the Kansas City Star. They host a public discussion with Henry Aaron and the gym theater is filled to the rafters. It was electrifying. And then after that, I take Mr. Aaron and his wife, Billy, up to an upstairs conference room, and the three of us are eating Gates barbecue ribs. I tell people all the time, it just doesn't get any better than that. The greatest day in my baseball life was touring Hank Aaron through the museum and then sharing a platter of Gates barbecue ribs. And every time he and his wife see me, they still ask me, do you have any ribs? Did you bring any ribs with you? That was, that was as special for me as it gets. You know, and, and the impact that he had on you still to this day. How old are you now? I, I'm 56. You're 56 years old. So you had that, that impression when you were seven, eight years old, maybe five, when he became your favorite player. 
it's now very apparent, I think, to everybody why it was significant that the Royals won when they won and did what they did because my kids were like your age when the Royals became world champions. And they'll always have Hosmer. They'll always have Duffy. They'll always have Salvi. They'll always have Moose. And those will always be their Hank Aarons. And for however long they live and however long they watch, they'll always remember those guys first. And that was memorable for me as well, both in 14 and 15, because I got to share that experience with my kids. Yeah. Because my, my kids were very young when the Royals won it in 85. They don't even really remember them winning in 85. And so really it was the first time in their lifetime that they saw this championship quality team, baseball team. And that was really meaningful for me to get that opportunity to share that World Series experience with them and going to a game. And both of them got to go to World Series games and both – 14 and 15 and they'll remember that the rest of their lives what's next for the negro leagues museum what's on the agenda what's the future hold oh man well you know there's some big plans as we get prepared for 2020 which will mark the 100th anniversary of the founding of the negro leagues in kansas city and so we're already starting to lay to put the blueprint together for what we think will be a tremendous national celebration you know every not-for-profit organization is always looking for an anniversary yeah. they can hang their hat on. We'll create an anniversary in a heartbeat, but this was legit. 100 years of the founding of the Negro Leagues is as significant occurrence as any in the echelon of American history because of what it meant, again, not just on the playing field, by creating its opportunity for both black and Hispanic baseball players to showcase their world-class baseball skills, but what it would ultimately mean in the social advancement of our country. And so that commemorative celebration, we hope, will be an opportunity to raise significant resources for the museum, build a national platform to celebrate the history of the heritage of our sport, but also showcase Kansas City as the birthplace where it all began. Yeah. Yeah, you can't tell this story without including Kansas City because this is where it all began. That's where Rube Foster stood on those steps and proclaimed, we are the ship, all else the sea. It was his declaration of independence as he served, he served heedance to Major League Baseball that a new player had arrived on the scene to be reckoned with. And it all starts there at the old Paseo YMCA, mm-hmm. right around the corner from the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum the future home of the Buck O'Neill Education and Research Center. So 2020 is going to be a significant year for us. And so we're starting the planning process now because this is going to be, I think, a tremendous celebration. Well, it's so significant. It's the last four digits of your phone number, too. So you can't say you're creating a, you know, an anniversary. When this is a real one, right? It is very real. Um, Buck O'Neill passed it on to you. Who yeah. are you passing it on to? Well, you know, I... I think as to be a effective leader of this organization, succession is a big part of that. So the process of starting to try and identify who will succeed is part of what I will need to do as part of this job. You know, it's never easy to look at your own subsequent, you know, demise or removal from Hey, you're eventually going to want to go sit on the beach too. Oh, you know? absolutely! You know, find a you know find a golf course and, and try to hit the golf ball and yeah. do those kinds of things. So, but you have to do that. And so, part of my job is to try and identify the person who will follow me. 
Now, my board may subsequently see it differently, but I would not be doing my job if I didn't at least have someone that I believe should be the person that succeeds me. And so that's all part of the next phase of growth for the Negro Leagues Museum. Will they be and as well-dressed they- as you? <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. And, but, you know, more importantly, I hope that they become as passionate about this subject and about this history as I am. You know, that's what you hope you see. And whomever it might be that subsequently leads, I just think you need that to effectively help people understand what this story is all about. Now, what they won't have is the luxury that I had to get to know and meet so many extraordinary Negro League players. I got to know Monty Irvin. You know, I knew Buck O'Neill and knew him quite well. He was one of my best friends. I got to meet so many of these legendary athletes to hear their stories firsthand. They won't have that at their disposal, but they will have a dearth of information that they can draw from to help them understand the challenges that are there, but also the enormous opportunities that come along with meeting those challenges. Works for me. (laughs) Thank you. I hope you guys enjoyed my conversation with Negro Leagues President Bob Kendrick. As you can see, he truly is making a difference every single day in Kansas City and is one of the great ambassadors of our great town. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.